I hope you've got a Bible with you. Roger is entirely responsible for my being here, so he has the blame. And this church is entirely responsible for the fact that it doesn't possess a lectern, hence I have this chair. <laughs> and I have to have, to have my head down, partly because my sight isn't very good. So I shan't see you, even if you can see me. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7. Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. I spend my time now in retirement preparing material for young pastors and preachers. As you know, you can get so much now on the internet and so many of these young ones do need help uh, and we must give what help we can. And I spent a lot of time in the last year or two with the later New Testament books is this, can you hear me, Mother? We're just closing the door, just make sure you hear. I seem just to be echoing. Is it all right? You can hear? Yeah, 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 right. Yeah, good. So I spend, uh, I've looked uh, a lot at the later New Te- Testament books because they have so much to do with persecution. So last year we did two Peter, and I've been doing two Timothy, and I've turned to Hebrews because, as you know from chapter 10, we haven't time to look at it. They were suffering from very extreme persecution. Uh, They had conflict, they had insults, and indeed some of them were in prison. Having said that, I think we don't want to talk too much about our persecution. On Sunday morning we had a a bishop from northern Nigeria in church, and I think the congregation was quite shaken by the fact that people are being killed every day by the Muslims in uh, northern Nigeria. It's an extraordinary thing, isn't it, that in this country people are conned into thinking that Islam is a peaceful religion. If you lived in Nigeria, you wouldn't think that, especially if your nearest and dearest were the latest to be killed. So I've just begun preparing Hebrews. I don't pretend that this is anything very uh, special. Um, It's amazing when you come back to Scripture, you say to yourself, well, I don't think I've really understood this book before. So I hope that I've understood it a bit better. I'm going to call this a mini-overview. Actually, I call it a mini-mini-overview, and I hope it may be some help in starting you off, maybe to a new study or a new series of addresses. Three headings, exhortation, number one, explanation or exposition, number two, example, number three. Exhortation, chapter 13, verse 22. Brethren, I urge you to bear with my word of exhortation, For, in fact, I've written to you very briefly. It's a typical preacher, isn't it, saying that they've been brief when they really haven't. It's fairly complicated stuff. There's a quarrel amongst the pundits as to whether this is a sermon, an address, or a letter. Word of exhortation is, in the Acts, a sermon. You remember Paul was asked to give a word of exhortation, which I take to be an address, a sermon, or whatever you like to call it. But clearly from the end, chapter 13, it's a letter. So it's a sermon or an address turned into a letter. And we start with exhortation. As you know, the number of let us do this in Hebrews is innumerable. I haven't bothered to uh, add them up. But he says again and again, let us, let us. Uh, That, of course, is appalling to listen to without explanation. And so this letter, though it's full of let us and exhortation, is backed up with a great deal of exposition and explanation. Uh, When I was young, I sat under the ministry. uh, When I was young, 
evangelical Anglicans and open brethren were very similar on Sunday night. That is, it was a gospel service, only in the church I'm thinking of, it was in a gospel appeal with no reason given. Uh, do you know that kind of sermon when you have endless uh, calls for those behind the stove to come forward or whatever it is, but there's no reason why, and in the end that drives you absolutely mad, doesn't it? So if you thought that Hebrews was simply ex exhortation, you'd be wrong, because as you know, it's got an enormous exposition in the middle, which we shall come to in a moment. Uh, the call to listen comes at the beginning and at the end, so we'll start with the call at the end. The main matter of the letter comes to an end at chapter 12, so let me read as best I can from verse uh, 25. It's an astonishing end to the main matter of the letter, and pretty severe. As you know, there's some pretty severe warnings in this letter. Uh, I can't imagine any other letter in the New Testament ending quite on the note that this does. So listen to this. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, once more I will shake not only the earth but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removal of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Now listen to this. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably, worship being one of the great themes of the letter, so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe for, quotation from Deuteronomy, he's quoting the Old Testament of course all the time, for our God is a consuming fire. Now that's not normal, is it, in a warning to a Christian congregation? And though some pundits think that these people are slipping back to Judaism, I think that's impossible. If you read the letter right through, he quite clearly believes them still to be Christian people who believe in Christ for their salvation. So that's the end. An appeal to listen, and with the warning, God is a consuming fire. Now turn back to the beginning, where, as you everybody knows, of course, it's a call to listen. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors. Now, I'm not going to read verses 1 to 4 because they're so well known, but notice uh, who is speaking. First, the Son, God's Son. Verse 2, now hold on to your, fasten your seatbelts. This is the Son, by whom the universe was created. Verse 2, by whom the whole universe is being sustained now, verse 3, and to whom the whole box of tricks is going to be inherited. In other words, the whole universe. All God's purposes, all God's plans, all God's enormous uh, achievements in salvation, all that is to be inherited by this Son. So it's an astonishing picture, isn't it? So what we're being told here right at the beginning is that this Son has come he has spoken, then he has sat down at the right hand of God, which means, of course, that he's finished speaking. And if he has finished speaking, that's the finished word, isn't it? Something we believe, I hope you believe in passionately. There's no more word to come. Whatever idiotic prophets may arise in our churches, or silly women who stand in front and say they've got a word from the Lord, there's no more word to come, because the Son has spoken and sat down at the right hand of God. Secondly, the Holy Spirit speaks to us, chapter 3, verse 7. 
This is the second part of Psalm 95. It's always left out in cathedrals and where they sing. But, of course, it's an extremely important warning which follows some glorious worship. And therefore, it's a bit of a shock. It's a bit of a cold shower. So, as the Holy Spirit says, verse 7, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart, as you did in the rebellion. Thirdly, it's the Christian leaders. Back again to chapter 13. We read verse 7, now verse 17. Have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you. I don't know why. I mean, there are so many things one doesn't fully know about Hebrews. He doesn't mention overseers. He doesn't mention elders. He doesn't mention deacons. He simply calls them leaders. I don't know what you make of that. But it suggests that they're not very churchy. And the leaders is just a normal title for the leader of a Christian um, church or whatever. And thirdly, of course, the unknown author who tells us to listen to his word of exhortation. Endless guesses have been made. Uh, I think probably I would put uh, my hopes on Apollos, who was mighty in the scriptures, but nobody knows. So the first thing to say about this letter, and it struck me enormously when I came to it, and especially if you read right through, is that over and over and over again, what the author is saying is listen to God. Listen to his son, listen to his spirit, Listen to your leaders and listen to me. I'm writing you this word of exhortation, which you need very badly. Now, there are endless uh, applications of this, and I could spend a lot of time on them. For example, I just find it fascinating to work through. You see, it's, the very essence of our ministry is calling people to listen, isn't it? Because if they don't hear what you've got to say, they'll live in ignorance. Is that not right? That's what you're here for, to speak. But do you remember the Plowden Report? I know some of you here are so young you wouldn't remember the Plowden Report. It's one of the stupidest bits of legislation that this country has managed to achieve. The Plowden Report said that children did not need to be taught. We had to draw out of them what they knew. Do you remember that? You'll remember that, Roger. Yeah, unfortunately, yeah. The whole thing, of course, crashed in the end because it was so futile. But, I mean, what does that tell you about the general atmosphere amongst the intelligent leaders of our country? It's an extraordinary attitude, isn't it, that we don't need information, that we ourselves... Well, of course, there are some preachers who simply tell us what, you, what they think. So, I mean, there are so many illustrations of that in contemporary life. But let's go back to the Reformation. What did Luther do with the liturgy of the medieval church? It's quite extraordinary what he does. His first liturgy for the simple people of Wittenberg was that you start with the word of God. The morning service on Sunday starts with the word of God. His first liturgy had nothing else but that. And he asked them to get up at 4 a.m. in the morning. Can you imagine? I suppose that's what the time he got up as a monk. That didn't work, incidentally. He tried next at 5 a.m. and that didn't work very well either. <laughs> Anyhow, the point is that the Reformation liturgy began with the man standing up, reading and expounding the word of God. A little later he added baptism and the Lord's Supper. A little later he added hymns, of course, because he wrote some. And gradually he, he built up a pattern that's more familiar to us today. And of course, what was Calvin doing at St. Peter's? Four or five mornings a week, early in the morning, preaching the word. 
and you get the result of Calvin preaching the word of course is in his commentaries and you still can't do much better than Calvin's commentaries um, it's amazing how many scholarly works today as commentaries don't really come up to what the common sense that he shows so much so the first thing is an exhortation who is it addressed to well it's addressed to Christian, uh, Jewish Christians almost for certain um, the dangers that they're facing probably meant that someone were, were slipping back. We'll come on to that a little later. That's the danger. But I'm sure it isn't apostasy yet. If it had been, the letter would be very, very different, and I doubt if they've been reading it. But it does have very, very strong warnings. I think I won't read it now, partly because uh, my, this print is so small. But haven't you been shocked by some of the warnings in Hebrews? Well, I will just try a few lines in, uh, in chapter 6. It's impossible, chapter 6, verse 4, it's impossible for those who once been enlightened, who've tasted the heavenly gift, and so on, who have fallen away, to be brought back to repentance. To their loss, they're crucifying the Son of God all over again. Jewish Christianity dominated the early church until A.D. 70. I think sometimes we don't remember that, but this morning you're going to... I'm sure you knew all this long before I knew it, but if this morning we're going to see the immense significance of that. Gentile Christianity began to dominate after A.D. 70. But before A.D. 70, that is in the lifetime of the writings of most of the apostles, Jewish Christianity is dominating. Uh, which is extremely important for our understanding of what's going on. Uh, the purists make much of this. Uh, I'm not going to because I think there's a gap here often in the commentaries. So there's one or two commentators say they believe that the writer was writing to Gentiles. Nearly all say that he was writing to young Jewish Christians who were suffering badly and in danger of slipping away. But if you think of 2,000 years, and if you believe in the providence of God, and if you think that these letters were written for us today, who's been reading Hebrews mostly for 2,000 years? Well, not Jews, Gentiles. And therefore, if you believe that God intended this book to last for 2,000 years and further on, then it's written for us just as much as the Jews. And I want to make that very, very clear. We are to learn from the Jewish reaction but it's just as much for us, and we can make the same mistakes that they made. So much then for exhortation. Exhortation is a bore, as I said, without explanation and exposition. Well, the exposition in Hebrews is at great length. It goes from chapter 2 to chapter 10, and if my maths is correct, and if uh, the 12 chapters, 12 chapters make up the main matter with chapter 13 just having personal appeals then chapters 2 to 10 is 9 twelfths of the letter which is 3 quarters so 3 quarters of this letter is a detailed exposition of Jesus the high priest chapter 3 verse 1 please turn to that if you've got a bible um, so important. Would somebody like to read that in a loud voice because some deaf ladies at the back of the church? Somebody read chapter 3, verse 1, please, in a loud voice. Rico, please. I've got my Bible in a year here. So I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he caught him out, didn't he? 3 1. 
He is the radiance. Oh, oh sorry, go on. No, go on, Rico. Three. Oh, three one, sorry. I was a good person. Roger, please. <laughs> Roger, are you listening? Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him. That's, thank you. That's all I need there. Isn't that remarkable? Fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. Now that is the theme of first chapters 2 to 10. Psalm 110 verse 4. Would somebody else read that in a loud, clear voice so that people like me who are deaf can hear it. Psalm 110 verse 4. Please. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now, Psalm 110, verse 4, is foundational for the Apostle teaching, as you know. It's quoted more often than any other psalm. And it centers on the one who's going to be a priest after the order of Melchizedek, which is, of course, chapter 7. But if you look at Paul, most importantly, Peter and John, Though there are elements of exposition on the priesthood, obviously, I mean, you remember Peter says that we are a, a royal priesthood and so on, there is comparatively little about the Melchizedek priesthood. In fact, Melchizedek, I don't think, is mentioned outside Hebrews. So you say, what on earth is this doing here? We're in, oh, this is important, I forgot to say it, we're in the second or third generation you see, before A.D. 70, we'd have, met, we'd have reached the third generation. And if the letter is after A.D. 70, the only reason that it could be before A.D. 70 is because it doesn't mention the fact of the destruction of the temple. If it had been written after that, it surely would have done. So you ask the question, why on earth in the th second and third generation of Jewish Christians do they need this long exposition of the uh, ceremonies of the law. And interesting, if you look, uh, uh, just glance, if you've got your Bible, at um, chapter 9, it's really quite, quite amusing. Now, the first covenant had regulation of worship and also an earthly sanctuary, a tabernacle set up. It's as though he's talking to the Sunday school. So it's quite clear that he's talking to the Jews of the dispersion, the Jews of the dispersion, of course, other Jews who live in the empire, but many of them have never known anything about their homeland. Uh, they've been born in Rome or wherever it is, and it looks as though the author of the Hebrews doesn't think they know all these details, and they need to know them very clearly, because that's what he's expanding. So the answer, you've got to give an answer to this question. Why on earth do we have this long exposition of priesthood in the second and third generation of that of that, uh, that early century, when the others seem to have left most of the detail out. Well, here's a sentence from Calvin that summarizes the point and gives us the answer. Quote, The priesthood of Christ abolishes all the ceremonies of the law. So that's what he's expanding in very great detail. What are the elements of the ceremonies of the law? There are three. First, there is the priesthood. And I don't 
I don't insult your intelligence, you know how many chapters go on in the Old Testament mm. about the consecration of uh, the Levites and the priests and the separation of these people to do their amazing holy work. Secondly, the sacrificial offerings, that it was their job to carry it through. And thirdly, of course, the holy places, the consecrated sanctuary. Interesting, isn't it? In America, <laughs> the Christians call their churches sanctuaries. I mean, if you're going to be pedantic, that's quite right, because the only sanctuary in Hebrews is in heaven. There are no sanctuaries on earth because that's all been abolished. There are the three great elements that he takes up in, um, in great detail. So let me tell you the answer that he gives before we go back to it all. Someone has said that the whole message of Hebrews is summed up in two little sentences. First, chapter 8, verse 1. Now, the main point of what we are saying is this. Ah, this is interesting, isn't it? He tells us the main point. What is he talking about? The main point of what we are saying is this. We do have such a high priest. Now, it's why, why are you beginning to look for a new cast of priesthood when we have one, the great high priest in heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ? And that is repeated in chapter 4, verse 14, in the most wonderful paragraph that I will read, because it's one of the most precious, surely, in the book. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to feel sympathy for our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. I doubt if there's a single person sitting around in this room who hasn't had to go, come to God in, in, at some grievous point of need for forgiveness and mercy. Mm. And we are bold to go to that throne of grace because the high priest is not operating on earth in buildings like this, he's operating at the right hand of God in the sanctuary. That's the only place you'll find a priest if you want help as a Christian. Now remember that. We're going to come to that later because it's a very, very important point in Hebrews. So number one of the two little sentences that give us the great assurance that we Christians need for our lives and for those that we seek to help. The other is chapter 13, verse 10. In a little paragraph, don't be carried away by all kinds of strange teaching. It is good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace, not by eating ceremonial foods. A very important thing for us today. Eating ceremonial foods is not God's main means of grace. Um, we have verse 10, okay? We have an altar from which those who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat. By the way, it's the tabernacle rather than the temple that he has in mind most of the time, but it doesn't very much matter as long as you realize he's talking about a sacred space. We have an altar, and I think it's next Sunday or the Sunday after when there's an open day for the city churches. I don't know who first started it. Uh, they try to open all these ancient churches, and it's astonishing the number of people who turn up, tourists and everybody else to see. 
And we have a, a number two at St. Helens called Charlie Screen, who's an absolute genius at this. Charlie is soft-spoken, but carries a punch in what he says. And he takes them round the church. Well, ever, ever since our restoration, and some of you will know about the bomb and our restoration, the stone altar disappeared with the rubbish of the bomb. And in its place there is a table. So as they go around to the different parts of the church, Charlie gives a little talk. And when, because all, before he can give this talk, somebody, usually a, a loquacious lady, will say, where's the altar? And Charlie will say, well, there isn't one. And then they'll all look very shocked. And he said, well, actually, we have a table. And then, of course, he'll preach the gospel to Apparently, <laughs> <laughs> Last year or the year before, there was a minister, uh, a, a liberal minister president who got very annoyed and said, this is not a tourist attraction. This is a evangelism. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, those two are grand sentences, isn't it? Just put it in your heart again in case you've been forgetting in case you have been feeling the need of mercy and forgiveness in your own Christian life, we do have a high priest. And we do have an altar. Put the two together. We have an altar, that is, we have our sins forgiven on the cross of Calvary. And we have a high priest today who continues that work of applying that forgiveness to the rest of your life. Is that not a wonderful salvation? Mm-hmm. Salvation, of course, in Hebrews is always future. You know, the posh word is eschatological. We don't really need the word, it's future as it is throughout the New Testament. It's our inheritance. It's what we ultimately find uh, on the last day when God saves us from the great judgment. Now we'll, I think, uh, jump ahead to the result of worship if we have a high priest and an altar. Let's get the order right. We have an altar where we are recon- God is reconciled to us and we are reconciled to God. That is the cross of Christ. And we have a great high priest who continues to uphold us and hear our prayers and forgive our sins. Turn back then to chapter 10, verses 19 to 25, uh, where our author sets out the authentic pattern of Christian worship without any Old Testament cultic ceremonies. Paul, are you able to read the small print? Just about. Will you read it for us? Chapter 10, verses 19 to 25, brother. Therefore, brother, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see, the day approaching. Well, uh, I'm sure you've, you've rejoiced in that paragraph before. Is it not remarkable that the end result of all the cult, cultic ceremonies of the Old Testament 
culminating in the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ means a congregation uh, of people who do three things. One, they draw near to God and they they draw near to God and they confess their faith in their high priest. Actually, we do that all every day, don't we? The moment you say grace at a meal, you're drawing near to God, aren't you? So this is not just at the Lord's Day. All through our lives now, and we've done it already this morning, we've, we've drawn near to God and to our high priest. That's the first thing. We have been set free from buildings, from religious uh, ceremonies, uh, to draw near to God and to trust in our high priest every moment of every day, but especially when we gather together. Secondly, we're to hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he has promised. That is, we are to confess with one another the promises he has made and to confess them that he will keep those promises. That is the very essence of the message that we give one another as we meet. And thirdly, we are to give ourselves to love and good works and encourage one another. Now, brothers, that is what we're meant to be doing on the Lord's Day, and that's what we're meant to be doing as a people of God all the time. One, to draw near to God, trusting in, our, in the altar and the high priest. Two, we are to confess the promises of God amongst ourselves, because we believe his promises. And thirdly, as a company of people, we're to give ourselves to love and good works, and to make sure that because when we get blasé, or perhaps slightly backslidden, we cease to meet together. We are to call each other to meet together, even though we don't want to. Isn't that a lovely paragraph? Absolutely pure, isn't it? What is, what is missing? Everything cultic. No ceremonies at all. Religion is gone. That's behind, by the way, the strange books that have come out since the war, like Bonhoeffer's Religionless Christianity. And Karl Barth saying that religion is simply a human thing. You know, they exaggerate it, but they're making a very important point, aren't they? That we're not really a religious people in that sense. As Karl Barth wants to say again and again, religion is a human construct. And all the relig religions of the world are a human construct. They are not a revelation of God. The revelation of God sets us free, therefore, to do these three wonderful things. Uh, Things that there are in chapter 10. So why would these Jewish Christians, and it's clear that the author est, uh, thinks of them highly, I'll just read one paragraph to show you that, because I think it's a lovely paragraph. After he's given them some strong warnings in chapter 6, he says, Though we speak like this, dear friends, we are convinced of better things in your case, the things that have to do with salvation. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you helped his people and continue to help them. That's the loveliest thing, isn't it? It could apply to you today. God will not forget your work as you help his people. So, if there was a slipping back, if Jewish Christians were tempted to look back to these things, you know, you do. Our, it's very difficult for us, I think, to enter into this. Why on earth would they want to do that? There are three reasons. Well, the first I mentioned already is safety. The Jewish, Judaism, the Jewish faith was a lawful religion in the Roman Empire up to a certain point. Um, it didn't follow through all the way. But in those early years was a lawful religion. And therefore to associate yourself with the synagogue 
to associate yourself with Jewish doings and so on would allow you to shelter from the wrath of the emperor. Well, that's what the commentaries say, and I assume there is something in that. I mean, I, I stand ready to be corrected on that. Uh, our brother this afternoon may know better on this. But that's what the commentaries really major on, that they were looking for safety in going back to these things. I think just a stronger point you'll find in Acts 21. So would somebody with a loud voice please turn to Acts 21, verse 17, and read from there. 21, let me just check. 21.17 Am I talking nonsense? No, from verse 17, somebody please, in a loud voice. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. Now listen. Go on, brother. Now listen to this. After greeting them, he relented uh, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. Go on. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. Mm -hmm. They are all zealous for the law. Thank you. We don't need to go any further. Isn't that a remarkable sentence? He comes back. And as usual, he gives his report what God has been doing amongst the Gentiles. And what do they say to him? Brother, you're now amongst Jewish Christians who are fanatical for the law. They've come to Christ, but they're not going to give up their heritage. Now, there's nothing strange in that, is there? <laughs> in this country, we are fanatical for our heritage, aren't we? Mm -hmm. When the bomb hit St. Helens, when I was the rector there, we had this court case. We had all five heritage bodies dead against us. All five. I won't go on and tell you. It's an amazing story. One by one they melted away. But they were furious that we wanted to remove so many ugly things. And, uh, and really, we weren't harming the heritage at all. I, I must tell you one wonderful thing. There was a chap called Biddle who was the expert on these um, structures. And uh, if they're in a cathedral, they want someone to tell them what date something is. They called this man in, apparently. And on the Tuesday or Wednesday night, after the people had gone, he went round with a knife, scraping all the holy things, like the holy water scoops and things that the, the Tractarians had been put in. I've given the game away, haven't I? And because the heritage bodies were telling us that they were medieval. And he scraped away this knife and he said, they're all Victorian work. <laughs> and that was announced the next morning. And they had, and the heritage bodies called for an adjournment. adjournment because, of course, it had completely destroyed their case. <laughs> because why shouldn't we remove something the Victorians put in? We couldn't remove anything the medieval people had put in, of course. Uh, and it simply, it was, um, it simply shattered their case, really. They, they really didn't recover from that. But the point I'm making is that our heritage is very important, isn't it? You can't fiddle with it. Even doorknobs, apparently, are, are valuable if they're medieval. 
And so don't let's blame the young Jewish Christians for wanting their heritage, um, and wanting not to forget. Later on we shall find that God didn't intend them to forget a great deal from the Old Testament. But the cultic ceremonies of the law have to go. So first safety, and I leave you to judge that for yourself. I really don't know. I don't know anybody who's done research into the third, second and third generation. I would have thought by then they were pretty separate from the synagogue, but I don't know what I'm talking about. Um, and I don't quite see how they could get safety in the third generation when it was pretty clearly known what the Christian church was. However, that's my ignorance. Second reason, heritage. These Jewish Christians were strong still for the law. Thirdly, my explanation. Well, it's not really my explanation, but it's the one that I want to put to you. So we come to my third heading, which is example. And we come to one of the most important verses of all in the letter to the Hebrews, which is chapter 11, verse 1. I can't see what I'm doing. Right, chapter 11, verse 1. I really think I should just pin somebody and say, will you please tell us from your memory, because this is such an important verse, isn't it? Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. It's a terrific verse on assurance, isn't it? Let me read it again. Faith is assurance of what we hope for. In other words, it's not a vague hope, it's a certain hope. We are assured in Christ that our reward is in heaven. And we are assured of the invisible God whom we do not see and to whom we pray and whom we praise every day of our lives and you're going to do so gathered here today. I was some years ago in North um, Scotland and I was... I mean, the, the really doughty Protestants up in the northern part of Scotland. Is there any Scotsman here? <laughs> they probably correct me. you probably correct me. But there, some of the Reformed Presbyterians up there are really, really very strong, aren't they? And there are dear elderly people who have not yet been, uh, who have been Christians all their lives, mm. who won't come to the Lord's table because they don't have assurance. Mm. Which in the light of this verse is very painful, isn't it? Mm. I mean... It's because, of course, they have a greater view of the holiness of God than most of us do, because it's all been trivialised so much with, in the South. Uh, it speaks well for their sense of their own sinfulness and a sense of the holiness of God. Nevertheless, it's, it's very sad, isn't it, that they don't have this confidence. Now, what is this, uh, these two elements? Because these are the two things that should control our lives on earth. The two things that should control your thinking are the future. Well, obviously the future controls your thinking, doesn't it? Um, some of you know uh, Chris Hawthorne is going out to Zambia to start um, a sort of training course. And uh, I've been getting his letters. And of course, they're all preparation. All they're doing now is to prepare for going on November the 6th. So you can imagine that everything that father and mother and the three children are doing today is in the light of November the 6th when they catch the plane. Was that you, Paul? <laughs> <laughs> I 
extent is the So your and my life are bound to be. The way we think about this world is controlled by the fact that we are on our way to the next world. That is the perspective we bring unconsciously to what we do now. Why are you an evangelist? Why on earth do you bother? It's because you are confident about the next world, isn't it? As, as being the place where uh, God intends people to find their fi final happiness. And of course people are all going in the wrong direction. And the other is, of course, you know that the God, the invisible God, is the real reality. I think you have to say that louder, sorry. Say it again, Mark. Yeah, well, these two things control your life, namely the future and the invisible Lord. Uh, I mean, just turn over the page. Now, you see, what is so interesting in Hebrews is that the religious cult the cultic ceremonies of the law are to go because Christ has fulfilled them we have an altar, we have a high priest but would you think that the Old Testament is gone well the whole of chapter 11 tells you the opposite is it not extraordinary that we are shown how to live the Christian life especially the people who have come after us in perhaps days of tougher persecution than we have ever known they will look to chapter 11 to find how to live the Christian life. And what is chapter 11 about? Not great New Testament missionaries and saints, but Old Testament heroes, men and women. So look at the two greatest of all, Abraham, verse 10, he's looking forward to the city. Verse 14, he's looking for a country of their own. Verse 16, is it? They're longing for a better country. <laughs> I don't know how you apply that. I mean, I asked myself before I came this morning, am I longing for a better country? Well, I'm longing to do something useful in the last few years of my life so that every day I don't get up saying I'm longing for a better country. But fundamentally, it is nevertheless true, isn't it, that our real hopes lie in Christ and what he's doing in the world in our future and that should control all our behavior, our thinking, our motives, and so on today. I think it's quite a challenging word, that. And as for Moses, well, uh, you know about Moses, verse 25, is it? I'll read it. He chose to be ill-treated. Well, many are going to have to choose that if this country is going to go on in its anti-Christ attitudes. He chose to be ill-treated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith he left Egypt, he left the world, not fearing the king's anger, and persevered because he saw him who is invisible. Well, we only have little tiny drops of disgrace. I know that... Um, um, and... Uh, Miss Will Mrs. Williams is going to tell you about this when, when she comes. Andrea Williams. Andrea. Yes. She's a lovely and courageous woman, she isn't is. she? Mm. And there are little drops of disgrace, aren't there, whenever she reports the business that they do in her, her, her work of these open-air preachers. Thank God, so far, when they've gone to law, they've found that they are free to preach in the open-air. Mm. 
But it's a pretty disgraceful thing in this country, isn't it? That a man should preach in the open air and then find that he spends two nights in the cells. It's just an indication of where things could go if we don't find people standing up for freedom, the freedoms that we've enjoyed for so many hundreds of years in this world, so many years in this country. So, with this wonderful pattern in front of them of how to live and how to worship, some people are turning back to holy places, consecrated buildings, a cast of priests to look after those buildings, and constant sacrificial offerings. Now, is it not quite remarkable that this letter of Hebrews almost certainly was sent to the people at Rome, the Christians at Rome, and that by the end of the 2nd century and the beginning of the 3rd century, the full Roman mass, as we understand it, was already recognisable. Isn't that remarkable? Showing, in fact, that Jewish Christians had slipped back, feeling the need of these supports. Well... Was it altogether the Jewish Christians who'd slipped back? Now comes the point that I think is so important. Turn back to 11.1. You're in the third generation of Christians. Do you want to go, brother? No, I've got to hear you. I'm going to be late. Go on. <laughs> <laughs> We're in the third generation. Do they have a faith like chapter 11, verse 1? Well, no, they don't. Because in the third generation you are bound to get nominals, aren't you? The children of Christian parents, Jewish Christian parents, and what they see and what they put their trust in is these supports, which is a building, a priesthood, and sacrifices. And that continues down 18, 19, 20 generations. Is it not remarkable? So that that is happening in the second to third generation of the uh, very early church. That's, what he, that's why Hebrews is written so much later than Paul's letters that are so early. I think it's fascinating, you see, because when you don't see the invisible, you need the visible. And when you don't have the hope of the future, you must, see, you must live by the present. Do you see? And so your religion will be worldly and visible and that is exactly what Catholicism basically is a religion of this world which is visible and it is carried out by the priesthood so I'm just thinking I, I know a particular Roman church which has enormous numbers coming in the, in, in the West End fashionable people come in if you look at their chart outside they have the mass about six times on a Sunday as well as Saturday night and these fashionable people come in and fill the church for all their services. But that's all they do. That's their religion. I'm sure some of them are Christians. I did have in my briefcase, now I forgot to bring it, a Crosslinks missionary magazine that I get. Their missionary has just brought to Christ a Roman priest. And his testament is remarkable. Yeah. Uh, he, uh, his sermons were made up by what he thought Christianity was and the dogmas of the church and now he's found that he's got to preach the Bible well where that will go I don't know <laughs> you don't know 
Whether he will ever get free of the system, well, that's a great question, isn't it? We just don't know. So what I want to say, and this is one of the main discoveries, I've only started this fairly recently. What I want to say is that um, this letter is for Gentiles. Because Gentiles too, if they're worldly and not born again, need support. Which is what we see all around us. So that when you turn to your commentary and they tell you it's entirely for Jewish Christians, you've got to think again. This is a, a general thing that affects everybody. I've nearly come to an end. I, 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 don't, I don't want to leave. You know, I think it's very unsatisfactory to leave it as though the only uh, fault lies with Rome, Roman Catholicism. You know, I, I was brought up in Lewis, so I'm a bonfire boy. I don't know if you know about those, but they behaved disgracefully usually on November the 5th. <laughs> it, used to, it used to be great fun, but of course now drinkers got into a lot of it, I think. But uh, my father was a bonfire boy and his father before him. And one of the things that the, they have five societies, and one of the things the Cliff Society does is they all come out in clergy vestments and they have a, a cardboard pope and they pitch him into the river. Um, and of course recently there's been a lot people are so much more sensitive now aren't they you know I think we are over sensitive oh, you can't have any fun like that it's not, that it's, <laughs> not that it's much fun honestly when it's fueled by the power but there we are I'm a bonfire boy at heart though I don't no longer go down to Lewis on November the 5th but I was stunned recently I want to leave Rome out of it for a moment uh, I was stunned by Romans 10 verse 3 Since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Now, that's a wonderful statement. What it is saying, I don't need to tell you, is if you won't submit to God's righteousness, that's the gospel, isn't it? The gospel is submitting to God's righteousness. So if you don't do that, I'm thinking now of Christians widely in denominations, you will seek to establish your own. Okay? So it is not Rome alone, my dear friends. Every denomination, in the end, as it gets corrupted, will do the same. Every denomination that loses the gospel will seek to establish and justify its existence. So in Anglicanism, the Tractarian movement, of the, uh, the Victorian Tractarian movement, led to the belief that the bishops were successors of the apostles. Uh, nobody but the Anglo-Catholics believe that, but they do believe that. And it was widely believed amongst Anglican clergy in the 30s. So if you read biographies of the 1920s and 30s, you'll find the most disgraceful things, like in a village, the Anglican vicar went and talked to the Baptist minister. Because he's kosher, the Anglican minister. He's got, he's got the oomph through apostolic succession, you see. So he passes by on the main street because he's superior. But that goes right through all denominations, even the one that's yours, down to the exclusive brethren. Why are the exclusive brethren separate from everybody else? Why are they kosher? Well, because they have their own things that God has given them that we don't have. But once you cease, once you become corrupt, as many exclusive brethren groups have, you will cease to submit to God's righteousness and you will exalt in some way your own. 
So, you can't be equal with others, Christians. But don't you see one of the marvellous things of, amongst young ministers, I think, today, is that they can join together across the denominations as long as they submit to the righteousness of God. Submit to the gospel and we can all come together, as we're doing in this room. Failure to submit the gospel and we all go our own separate ways. It's a stunning sentence, isn't it? So I think it's one of the, the wonderful things today to go to these gospel coalitions. I mean, I'm too old to go to them now, but when I hear about them, I'm thrilled that people can actually meet and say hello to one another and not look down on one another. Because each of them has submitted to the righteousness of God and therefore doesn't need to establish their own righteousness. Once you need to do that, then you go off on your own, don't you? Superior. So you just look at the denominations across the world and see as some of them become more corrupt, farther away from the Spirit of God, then they begin to erect their own righteousness and glory in some human thing. So I suppose one of the application of today is thank God for the Reformation. So some evangelicals, some Anglican evangelicals seem to be going soft on the Reformation. But what Romans 10 verse 3 tells us is that Reformation has to go on all the time. Thank God for the Reformation, which is, how did it start? It started with exhortation, hear the word of God. Luther, standing up in that All Saints Wittenberg, with only the word of God in his hand and abolishing everything else until they understood it. That's how the Reformation started. With all his many faults that he may have had, that's how it all started. But that's where it's going today. So don't let's stop reforming uh, and insisting that if we want to live together as Christians and if we don't live together we're going to be much weaker in preaching the gospel. Uh, we all must submit to the righteousness of God all the time and never establish our own righteousness. And then we can look each other in the face and work together as gospel people. Amen. Amen.